0: So we're Matthew chapter number 15, let's pray. Our Father, how we love you tonight. I thank you that you first loved us. As I see it, Lord, it'd be impossible for us to love you if you had not loved us. Because the Bible tells me that you first loved us, and then it tells me that you shed the love of God abroad in our hearts by thy Holy Ghost. We love you because you first loved us. And I thank you that we love you and that we know you. Thou art great and wonderful altogether. There is none like unto thee, Lord. The Bible tells us there is none else, and we know that. Thou art God and thou alone. We thank thee that we get to know thee and serve thee and we get to be with thee forever. We thank thee, Father, for thy son, Jesus. We thank you for the work that he did on the cross of Calvary on our behalf. We thank you that we've been washed in his blood. We thank you for the gospel. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we might be made more aware than ever, as we spend this time together, of the lost and dying around the world who have not heard the gospel. Oh, how we need to get the gospel to them, for it is the gospel that is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes. And if we could get it to them, perhaps some of them would come to Christ and be saved. Bless the preaching of your word tonight. Stir our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're Matthew 15, and in just a little while, we'll begin at verse number 21. John said in uh, 1 John 5:1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, there is a believing in Jesus which results in... You're going to have to put on your thinking caps and follow along with me tonight. Try to hang on to every word. There is a believing in Jesus which results in one being born of God or born again. And there is a believing in Jesus, which does not result in one being born of God. That is, does not result in one becoming a true Christian. You see, the idea behind the word translated believeth is that those who believe unto salvation and are born of God are those who are more than simply persuaded that the thing is true, that is, that Jesus is the Son of God, but that being persuaded that it is true, they have confidence in Him, they have put their trust in Him, they believed on Him, and trusted Him with their soul safekeeping. The vast majority of believers, and you know this to be true, the vast majority of believers believe in God and believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but their belief is a mere mental assent of the fact. It's a mental ascent. In other words, they believe these things to be true, but they do not look to and trust in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ for salvation. They do not turn from their rebellion and commit themselves to him. And it is in that sense that the vast majority of Christianity so-called believes. They believe but not with a heart unto salvation. So we have all these people out there that claim to be Christian. They believe. You believe in God? Yes. You believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Oh, yes. But they don't believe with the heart unto righteousness. They believe, but they've never been converted. In other words, they're not born of God. They're not his children by faith any more than devils who believe. Remember what John said? James said, excuse me, thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils believe and tremble. Those devils aren't saved. They believe, but they're not saved. So there is a believing unto righteousness, and there is a believing which is a bare speculation and knowledge. There is saving faith and there is faith which is a mere mental assent and does not result in salvation. It's just that simple. Tonight I want us to consider the true Christ-honoring faith of a woman of Canaan. The Canaanite woman's Faith is recorded in Matthew chapter number 15. And as we approach this passage of Scripture, I'd like to give you some background material. One, we know that Jesus and his disciples had been in the land of Gennesaret prior to verse number 21. We're going to begin at verse number 21 in a minute, but we know that Jesus and his disciples had been in the land of Gennesaret prior to verse number 21. It says in Matthew chapter number fourteen verse thirty four and when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. and when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about, and brought unto him all that were diseased, and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as were touched as many as touched were made perfectly whole. So we know that Jesus and his disciples had been in the land. Of Gennesaret, and number two, being in that land, it is assumed that they were at Capernaum. I believe that's where they were. Was at Capernaum, and this is interesting because Matthew fifteen one says, "There came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees which were of Jerusalem." So Jesus is up there somewhere around Capernaum probably in Capernaum. And these scribes and Pharisees come to him from Jerusalem. Now, these men, having no doubt heard of the great work that the Lord was doing and of the miracles and the feeding of the 5,000 and the healing of the sick and diseased, came to observe him and, as they would normally do, to undermine his influence he got a great deal of influence in Galilee, and they come to undermine his influence. But the interesting thing is that they travel about 85 miles to do this. They came from Jerusalem and went all the way to somewhere near Capernaum, and that would be 80 to 85 miles or so. Now, that was no little distance in that day to travel. So these powerful men, these are powerful men, from Jerusalem, of whom John Gill says were the chief. That is, those scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem were held in higher esteem than scribes and Pharisees from other places. And he says they were men of the greatest learning and abilities and were more expert in their religion and customs. Also, John Broadus says that those from Jerusalem were the most eminent and regarded in Galilee with special reverence. So these, I will call them uh, scribes and Pharisees, these scribes and Pharisees, I'll call them emissaries of evil, came all the way to the land of Gennesaret, and all we find them doing as we read on is criticizing the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples. They travel 85 miles... And they come to criticize the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, think about that. Isn't it interesting the great lengths that people will go to in order to find fault with and to criticize those who are serving God and just simply doing good? Over the years of my service to the Lord, 45 years now of preaching, most of it pastoring, I have many times sat and listened to some nitpicking fault finder criticize me. I've tried to listen with patience and to answer the best I could. I have on a few occasions over the past few years sat and listened to some fault finder criticize my pastor, my son Bobby. He'd call me up and he'd say, Dad, uh so and so wants to talk to me in my office, would you uh would you be here at two o'clock or whatever the stated time was? And I'd say sure. And somebody come in. One time it was a couple of women, another time it was a man, another time a couple, I believe, and they'd sit down and they had a list. <laughs> Nitpickers, fault finders the silliest things that you've ever heard of in all your life. They're just looking for something to criticize, for something to find fault with. They'd sit there and we'd listen, as I have over the years. We'd try to answer the accusations and answer their questions. And Yeah, yeah, I did say that when I was preaching, but... uh, No, no, I I couldn't take that back or change that. Listen, the Bible says this, and and I can't, I've got to stick with the Bible. Or, uh, yes, yes, we are going to do that, and and no, I can't do what you want me to do, because that would be compromise. One woman I remember one time got so angry at me. You know what she wanted me to do? She had her mother at home, and her mother was bedfast, a very elderly woman, and her mother was a Roman Catholic. <clears throat> this woman was a member of my church. Claimed to be saved, and she'd been baptized in another church and came from came from a good church, a sister church. And uh, But she had moved from one state to another, so she was now with me. And uh, she wanted me to come to her house. She and her husband both wanted me to do this, to come to the house and serve communion to her mother in the home because her mother had always been able to go to the mass and you know the catholic priest would bring it to her and so I explained to her why from the bible I can't do that and the lord's supper is for the church in church context it's not to be delivered out there to somebody on a sick bed and we talked about that, and she got so angry. But I'm just saying there have been over the years many like that. And, and usually it's not some big thing like that. It's just some little nitpicking thing that they don't like. And they end up forsaking the church of the living God over something that is so foolish. Something they want the man of God to do or to change, and it's just so foolish, and they end up forsaking the church of the living God over it. Oh, excuse me, if they could only hear and understand how foolish their complaints are. And I do believe that they will someday hear and understand how foolish when they stand before God. But even beyond that, I am convinced that most of those people that I faced like that over the years and who stormed off and forsook the Church of the Living God weren't even saved. They're lost people who couldn't obey the commandments of God. Now, as we approach verse number 21, we find the Lord leaving. He's leaving the northwestern coast of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, He's been at Capernaum, I say, over there in Galilee. And you've got the Sea of Galilee here, if you can see it in your mind, on a map of Palestine. And you've got the Jordan River running down the Jordan Valley into the Dead Sea. And up here from where you are, over here is the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where Jesus is at that time. And he's leaving, and verse number 21 tells us that he's going to go over to the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. That's 30 to 35 miles away. Tyre and Sidon were on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And that's where the Lord Jesus is headed. And that's Gentile territory. It's outside the country of the Jews. And he's going up there. Now, when the Bible says, in verse number 21, then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon, that word coast is, is not referencing there a place where there was water, and it was a coastline of water. You see, that word coast is used in the Bible in different ways. Uh, back in the Old Testament, you'll recall that when the Lord had the land divided uh, for the uh, different tribes of Israel, when Moses was doing that, that their border was to run from one place to another. Now, it might be only through land, no body of water involved, and the Bible says the coast was to be from one place to another, and that meant the border. And uh, the coast is sometimes a reference to the region or the area of some place close to. And so the Lord Jesus, the Bible doesn't say, went to Tyre and Sidon, those cities, that he went within those cities, but he went to the coast of Tyre and Sidon, or some place up there that borders Tyre and Sidon, some place close, some place in that region. And it says in verse 21 again Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Now, I think that you can see just simply from the reading of this passage that the Canaanite woman's faith was a true biblical faith. Not just an empty intellectual belief or a scent of something that is true, but a saving faith, a biblical faith. As a matter of fact, the Lord Jesus said to her that which we could only hope to hear if he were speaking directly to us. He said, O woman... Great is thy faith. Oh, I could only hope to hear that. Oh, man, great is thy faith. And she heard those words. Now, it's interesting how that Jesus responds to her in comparison to his response to those scribes and Pharisees in the opening verses of the chapter. Note, he's disgusted with the scribes and Pharisees as he rejects and reprimands them for their hypocrisy. In verse number 2 of chapter number 15, these critics whose goal was to discredit the Lord and his followers asked, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. He answers them in verse number 3, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? Now notice, they are concerned with and point to tradition. He is concerned with and points to scripture. Big difference. Then he identifies them as hypocrites as he applies the words of Isaiah to them. Notice what he says in verses 7 through 9. Ye hypocrites, he says this to the scribes and Pharisees, these Religious leaders, these eminent men from Jerusalem. He says, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So they're concerned with the commandments of men, with the traditions of the fathers. He's concerned with the commandments of God. He's concerned with the scriptures. Notice, though, that he's delighted with this Canaanite woman and regards and praises her for her faith. So you see what I'm getting at? Here's these eminent religious leaders, these great Bible scholars come down from Jerusalem, and he's disgusted with them, and he reprimands them. But here comes Canaanite woman this Gentile dog, as they would look at her. And the Lord Jesus Christ praises her, regards her highly, and praises her for her faith. The difference? She was a believer. They were not. These religious believers who led in Jehovah worship, were not even believers. This Canaanitish woman, this Gentile dog, over there outside the land of the Jews, she was a believer. She was a Jehovah worshiper. So she was a believer, they were not. The difference? She loved God, These eminent religious leaders did not love God. Now, preacher, how can you say that? They didn't keep his commandments. John said, this is the love of God. The love of God, like a man has a love of fishing or a love of hunting. This is what this is talking about. He says this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. There's the proof of it. That we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. She loved God. They didn't love God. So the Lord Jesus respects her and highly regards her and and compliments her. Oh, woman. Great is thy faith. Now, look at the story as it unfolds. First of all, the Lord Jesus departs to the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Verse number 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. So, the Lord Jesus departs from Galilee, departs from the scribes and Pharisees, after rebuking the scribes and Pharisees and teaching his disciples that these hypocritical religious leaders were no more than blind leaders of the blind, according to verse number 14. That's what he said. Yea, teachers whose false teaching would be the ruin of both them and their followers. He furthermore makes it clear, as he refutes their criticism, that those things which defile a man are the things which come forth from an evil heart, not the external things. The Jameson Fawcett and Brown commentary puts it this way, nothing which enters from without can really defile us, and that only the evil that is in the heart that is allowed to stir there, to rise up in thought and affection, and to flow forth in voluntary action, really defiles a man. In any case, he departs and he travels, as we said, about 30 to 35 miles northwest. Broadus suggests that the jealousy of Herod, the hostility of the Pharisees, and the fanatical notions of the people were all contributing factors to his departure from Galilee. It is also suggested by some that he and his disciples needed some rest, and so they headed toward the refreshing climate of the mountain region of Phoenicia where uh, Tyre and Sidon were located. However, as I read this and pondered this, the thing that jumped out at me in this verse, 21, then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon, was that he left Galilee. He left these scribes and Pharisees. I I, I got taken up with that word, departed. Jesus departed. It makes me think of times when he made depart. Right here in verse number 14, he said to his disciples with reference to the scribes and Pharisees, let them alone. Jesus said, let these blind leaders of the blind alone. They and those who follow them will fall into a ditch. Leave them alone. You don't want to be left alone by God. Not in this sense. You don't want the Lord to depart. Think on those words. Let them alone, they be blind leaders of the blind. One man put it this way. They were judiciously decreed to hardening by the Lord Jesus. Let them alone. Let's move on. Let them alone. There was no fear of God before their eyes. So Jesus says, let them alone. What I'm getting at here is this. When God speaks to you, you better obey. You better listen to God. If you've never obeyed the gospel... And God's been speaking to your heart about the gospel. Your need to be saved. You you better listen to God. You better obey the gospel. You better repent and be saved. You do not want God to leave you alone. You don't want God to depart. What a terrible thing it would be to be left alone in your natural state eventually to die in your sin. To be left alone for all of eternity. To be left alone would be to be without God and without hope. It would be to be in the end suffering everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord left alone. Jesus said, let them alone. You don't want to be left alone. A.J. Hodge wrote in 1923 these words, there's a line that is drawn by rejecting our Lord where the call of his spirit is lost and you hurry along with the pleasure mad throng. Have you counted? Have you counted the cost, he asked? Have you counted the cost if your soul should be lost though you gain the whole world for your own? He said, even now it may be that the line you have crossed, maybe you've already crossed that line, he said. Even now it may be that the line you have crossed—have you counted? Have you counted the cost? You don't cross that line. You don't want God to leave you alone in that sense. So Jesus departs and turns toward the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Secondly, the woman of Canaan pursues him. Verse number twenty-two. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him. Now, Spurgeon said of this woman, and I'm going to quote him. It's, it's several sentences, but it's worth quoting. Spurgeon said she was altogether an outsider. The Syrophoenician woman, this Canaanite woman. She was altogether an outsider. She was not a Jewish. She did not belong to God's chosen people. She was not one to whom Christ came to preach, for he said that he was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She was what we sometimes call a rank outsider. To herself or her father's, no covenant promise had ever been given, no prophet had ever spoken, no gospel message had ever been delivered. She had no connection whatever with the whole gospel system Except such a connection as infinite grace was pleased to make. And I read that and I wept. And I thought about me. I had no connection whatsoever with the whole gospel system. There was no reason that God should come to me and that God should save me. I was a young fellow up there in northeastern Pennsylvania in farm country. I didn't attend a gospel preaching church. There wasn't a good church like this one in all the area. Nobody in my family was saved. None of my friends were saved. Nobody served God. Nobody loved God. Nobody had anything to do with God. Why would God save me? Infinite grace was pleased to make a connection with me. I did pray as a youngster. I sat out in the front yard. There was a hill there, and I sat on the edge of the hill. And I remember looking up into the sky in the evening and asking God if, if it were true, if he were out there, if there was a God to reveal himself to me. I did crazy things through the years to try to get God to reveal himself to me as a young man. And he never did do any of the crazy things I wanted him to do. But you know what he did do? He sent a preacher to that town. And he found me and the preacher shared with me the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was saved by the grace of God. But as I said, I had no connection whatever with the whole gospel system except such a connection as infinite grace was pleased to make. It was also some years ago that I read a sermon by Spurgeon in which he pointed out that the most precious jewels. Now you've got to understand that he's illustrating here and that he's speaking about this gentile woman Canaanitish woman way up there outside of the land of the jews up there on the coast of tyre and sidon and he points out that the most precious jewels he's talking about her the most precious jewels are often found in the darkest places and he also, as he illustrated, referenced the diamond mines of the world. Diamonds are mined in dark places, and usually down below the earth. They bring them out of dark places. And there, in a dark place of this world, the Lord Jesus Christ found a jewel of rare beauty when he found this woman. And Spurgeon said that this should teach us, listen to this, that no country of this world, nor any particular district within a country, nor any class of people is so depraved, but what people might be won to Christ if they would be so blessed as to hear the gospel. There I was, and I was so blessed to hear the gospel. And what do you know? That I got saved. And I'm saying to you right here that there are, what, over 7 billion people in the world now? And people are in some dark places. Oh, I'm not just talking about in the jungles and so on. I mean there are some dark places right here in this county and in the cities around here and all across this state and across this nation and around the world there are people in dark places Some of them would be saved if they could only hear the gospel. And it's our responsibility. Your responsibility as a New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ to get the gospel to them. And I said there are people right around here in some dark places. You can carry the gospel to them. But there are people in the regions beyond that you do not have contact with. And so you need to send the missionaries to them. That's how it's done. That's how we go into all the world as a church and preach the gospel to every creature. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, And teaching them to observe all things whatsoever Christ has commanded. It's our responsibility to do that. And they're there. As I said, some of them would believe the gospel. But we've got to get it to them. There in that dark corner of the world comes a woman out of the woodwork, if you will. Crying unto Jesus. A woman who lived in a place of unfavorable circumstance and yet a woman of great faith. A woman who probably hadn't heard a whole lot about Jesus but had heard enough. Amen. A woman who perhaps had been discouraged as others threw cold water on her effort to pursue Christ and even the disciples did that. Yet she comes and she cries. Thirdly, the purpose of the woman's pursuit is to intercede on behalf of her daughter. Verse number 22. And cried unto him, the woman cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. She cries because she's in great distress. And she knows without a doubt whatsoever that Jesus can effect a great delivery. She cried as we would if we were in great distress. You see, we know that God is able to do anything, don't we? We know that God is able to do anything that He wills to do. We know that He is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, Psalm 24, 8. We know that he is omnipotent, yea, that power belongeth unto God, Psalm 62, 11. This woman knew that. and She knew that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, the Lord and Savior of the world. And she comes crying. Notice her words as she cries. O Lord, thou Son of David. Now the word Lord, and, and, and I'm proving... Some of what I just said. The word Lord is translated from a word which indicates that she saw him as the one to whom she belonged. That's what I mean. She saw him as her master. The title is therefore one of respect and reverence. Furthermore, she calls him son of David. Which indicates that she did believe him to be the Messiah of Israel. While she lived in a heathen country, it was a place in close proximity to Israel. And she, being familiar with Jehovah worship, was apparently herself a worshiper of Jehovah, the one true and living God. Notice that she cries to the Lord, the son of David, for mercy. Mercy because her daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Now the obvious or foremost idea here is that she desired that he have pity on her and show compassion. That is, that he be moved to help her daughter by a miraculous deliverance. Mark's gospel reveals that her daughter was a young child. Mark says in chapter number 7, verses 25 and 26, for a certain woman whose young daughter, he calls her, whose young daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell at his feet, The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. And the word young in Mark's Gospel, verse 25, indicates a little child. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having a little child grievously vexed with a devil and dwelt by a devil we had four children this was her daughter our first two were daughters the cutest little blonde haired blue eyed girls I remember so well when they were young and how they'd crawl up on daddy's lap and back then they we didn't have all the safety belts and harnesses and everything they had today and they'd sit on the arm that would fold down the front seat and put their arm around daddy's neck while I'd down the road. And I can't imagine one of them being grievously vexed with a devil. I have a little boy that lives next door to me up in pain. We have ten grandchildren that live next door to us. We have three two-acre lots and we live on one. Mike lives on one with his family and Bobby lives on the other with his family. And the youngest one now is little Christian, Mike's boy. He's about two years old. And he'll make his way even in the winter through the snow, and they'll let us know he's coming. And he'll come up to our back deck, and he'll look in that window in the glass sliding door, and he'll say, Grandpa, Grandpa, Grandpa. And he'll come in, and he's so loving, and I put him on my chest in my easy chair and he'll lay his head next to mine, and he'll kiss me on the cheek, and he'll tell me he loves me. Now, what am I saying? I can't imagine. The hardest thing for me on this trip of of over three months is I'm going to be away from him. That's hard. But I can't imagine that little boy that I love so much being grievously vexed with a devil. And that's what we have here. She's pleading for her young daughter, for a little child. A little child dwelt with a devil. What a horrific trial that must have been for this woman. Yet where there's great distress, great deliverance is needed. And that great deliverance tends to glorify the grace of God all the more. Number four, the dialogue between the woman and the Lord Jesus. Notice her words in verse 22. Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. She desires mercy. She desires compassionate treatment. An act of assistance. She desires relief from the great distress that this trial has caused her. Notice his reply. Verse 23. But he answered her not a word. Wow. O Lord, thou son of David. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter, think of this, my little girl, my young child is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. Wow. Sometimes silence is settling. We're driving down the road day before yesterday. I forget whether we were coming through New Jersey or around Washington or D.C. Or, or, or where we were at the time, but we're trying to figure out which way to go. And, and we've got the uh, uh, GPS on, and she's yakking, and we're, we're trying to see, and you've got all these signs up here. You know, there are about 15 lanes here, and roads are going ever which way, and Rush Limbaugh's on the radio. I'm listening to him, and I like to listen to him, but at this point, it's yak, 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 and I couldn't drink anymore, and I hit the button. Whew, silence Whew. it was settling. I get control, but sometimes silence is frightening it's unsettling. Why did Jesus not speak? Why did he not answer? Because he was trying her faith with silence? Have you ever prayed? And it seems as though there's silence. God hasn't answered yet. God tries your faith. The Lord Jesus tried her faith. Broadus says that it is his purpose to develop, strengthen, and manifest her faith. Matthew Henry said Christ treated her thus to try her. He knows what is in the heart, knew the strength of her faith, and how well able she was by his grace to break through such discouragements. He therefore met her with them with discouragements that the trial of her faith might be found unto praise and honor and glory. Her words in verse 25, Lord, help me. There's her plea. Lord, help me. Now these words are joined with worship. The verse says, Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. In the New Testament, to worship would be the idea, according to Strong's Concordance, of kneeling or prostration to do homage or make obeisance. In verse number 22, she had called him Lord and Son of David, and now her faith puts her on her knees in the presence of the Lord Jesus as she cries, Lord, help me. That's a simple and pitiful petition but it fully expresses the need. She couldn't help herself. No one else could help her. So she cries, Lord, help me. Now thank God that we can pray thus when we sometimes come to our wit's end. Have you ever been there? I know you've been there. At some point in your life, I've been there. I've been there several times. When the only thing I could do was get on my knees and cry out, Lord help me. Sometimes I couldn't even get on my knees, but that's the only prayer I had to offer was, Lord help me. That's the only prayer. Do you know that night out here when I fell out of that trailer? And I knew I was going, and then I'd wake up for just a second every now and then, and I'd see him working on me and so on, and in my heart it was just, Lord help me, I knew I was in trouble. I knew I was in bad trouble. I'd wake up in the in, in in the uh intensive care ward, and that's all I could think is Lord help me. And just a while back I had bypass surgery with four bypasses and, and 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 I lost my ability to breathe. My lungs collapsed, and they put me in an intensive care room on a machine that was causing me to breathe, and I had tubes down my throat, and my hands were strapped and my feet were strapped and every now and then I would wake up and I thought I was dead. I've got to be dead. I didn't know there were tubes in my throat. I can't breathe. I'm laying there and I can't breathe. If you can't breathe, you're dead. And I jerk on those things and try to get loose. Why am I not in heaven? Why won't they let me go? And all I could do was cry, Lord, help me. And I'd jerk and the nurse would come in the room and she'd say, stop it, you're going to hurt yourself. And she'd put me back to sleep. And I'd wake up, and went through that for five days. That'll almost drive you out of your mind. I mean, it's horrific. It's horrific. I didn't know where I was or what was happening. Lord, help me. Sometimes that's all you've got. Lord, help me. But when you're there and you're worshiping Jesus, you're at the feet of Jesus on your knees or prostrate in his presence and you're crying, Lord, help me. God can be moved. And I want to tell you, he can deliver with a wonderful deliverance. His reply in verse number 26. But he answered and said, here she is on her knees. Worshipping him and crying out. The only prayer she has left is, Lord, help me. And it says, but he he answered and said, wow, it is not meet to take the children's bread. He says to this woman. On her knees, it's not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Now, the word meat is an archaic word, which means good, fit, or proper. Jesus said to her, it's not good to take the children's bread. Who are the children? The Jews. It's not meat, fit, proper to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. I said the children will be the Jews, so he is saying that the Messianic benefits belong to the Jews... And to take their bread and cast it to Gentiles wouldn't be proper. It would be akin to giving the food that you have to dogs when your children are starving. So Jesus said that wouldn't be proper. You wouldn't give good food to dogs at the expense of your children. Her words, verse number 27. She said, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. He tested her. He's trying her. And listen to what she says. What a shrewd argument she presents. She was not disputing with the Lord Jesus, but she was arguing from a hopeful position. And all the while assenting to what he said as she confirms his words. That's the truth, Lord. I know it's for the children. And I know I'm nothing but a dog. I'm nothing but a lousy dog. But, oh, Lord, if I could just be here under the master's table and just, just a crumb. If I could j- get just a crumb. And Jesus answers and says unto her, O woman, Great is thy fe- faith, be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. There's the seal of his approval. Great is thy faith. Something akin to you and me, perhaps someday hearing, well done thou good and faithful servant. You ought to be willing to give everything in order to hear that. Everything. Everything. The Apostle Paul Talked about all those things that he had going for him being a Jew and a tribe of Benjamin and all those things. But he said, I counted them all but dung in order that I might gain Christ. And you ought to be willing to count everything in this life but dung. Cast it all aside in order to hear from the Lord someday, well done, thou good and faithful servant, because that's worth everything. Think on it. That's worth everything. Then fifthly, that faith which delivers. Remember, there's two kinds of faith. We started out talking about that. Faith which delivers or saving faith and the faith which is a dead faith. That is a faith which is no more than intellectual belief in something. But notice here the faith which delivers. The daughter was delivered. Verse number 28 says... And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. The cry of the woman of Canaan was a cry of a faith, or from a faith that delivers, or that saves. She cried, the power of God went forth from Christ. And Mark 7.30 says, and when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out, and her daughter laid upon the bed. Her daughter laid upon the bed. That indicates that her daughter was at rest. No more pain. No more mental anguish. Can, can you imagine that reunion? When she hurried back to her house, when the Lord said, You can have it. And she hurries back to her house and she gets in there, and there her daughter lays upon the bed, peaceful. No longer dwelt by a devil. No more pain. No more mental anguish. She was at ease. And for the first time since that devil had taken control of the child, her mother was at ease. You know, the mother, I I noticed this, studying this passage, that the mother cried out to the Lord, Have mercy on me. It's the daughter who's vexed with the devil. But she's crying to the Lord have mercy on me. Why? You know, a mother is the one who truly feels the pain of her children and enters into the trials of her children like nobody else. And if the child's delivered, the mother's delivered. So she cries have mercy on me and she goes home and for the first time in a long time she's at peace. She can rest. She's delivered because her daughter's delivered. Wow. What a woman. A woman of great faith. The Lord Jesus said so. I wouldn't go around saying he's a man of great faith or she's a woman of great faith. But the Lord Jesus said she was. She was a woman of great faith. And there she was, off in a dark place of this world, if you will. And the Lord Jesus goes there and she finds deliverance. Again, my point, if we could get the gospel to the dark places of this world, we'd find people who would be saved if they could just hear that gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and they can't be saved apart from hearing the gospel. So we've got to get the gospel to them. Amen? Thank you, Lord. Go ahead, preacher.